Welcome to the show where we interview our network of B2B SaaS experts. In this episode, Bethany Ayers, Director of Sales at Cloud IQ, on putting together a pitch deck to raise money for a startup. This is the Notion Capital Podcast, hosted by Paul Papadimitriou. Hi, and today I'm with Beth. Hi, Beth. Hi. <laughs> yeah, for the, for, for the first time in our podcast, we're actually next to each other, so we're looking at each other. That's why Beth just smiles. So who are you, Beth? Who am I? Um, I am an American who's been in London for about 16 years, so I've done most of my working life here, despite the accent. I'm probably more English than I am American at this point. Uh, I was at New Voice Media for five years where I was SVP of strategy and joined the company when we were 32 people and left when the company had about 450. And during that time, we raised over $100 million in six rounds, five rounds. So I have a lot of experience in fundraising, doing commercial due diligence and dealing with investors. I left about a year ago and have been helping more companies with their pitch decks, mostly through the Notion portfolio and Notion family. And I'm also working at a company called Cloud IQ, where I'm helping with both their strategy and their sales operations. Come back to New Voice Media. You grew it, of course, you grew it with the founders, but which round of funding did you go through? So I was hired just after the A round, and then there was kind of a a and a half, and then I was there for B, C, D, E, and half of F. Half of F. Okay, so I'm going to ask a very simple question first, and I'm sure the answer is yes. Were all these rounds very different from each other? Yes. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the first round was with existing investors, and then entering in the first growth investor in our B, but was still in the UK. That was Highland. Then we went over to America, and so that is a different... Um, I'm not sure if it's just American or also the fact that you're looking at a C round, so it's more money. And that was with Bessemer, BVP, and then um, TCV after that, another American brand and Americans, but actually over in London, which helped with the time difference. <laughs> because all this time you were based in London. Yes, we're based in London for the whole thing. Yeah, we'll go for the difference between the uh, Americans and the Brits later, probably, because that's also a question that is often asked. But in terms of the amount of money that you just hinted at, of course, the maturation of the company as well, can you tell us a little bit of a background? How did your work evolve because of these increasing valuations, increasing amounts of money? I think that the level of what people expected of you increases over time as people become more sophisticated or expect you to be more sophisticated. But luckily, as your company grows, you have many more of those metrics. You've done a lot of the thinking along the way. I went back recently and had a look at some of the early drafts and just like, <gasps> um, in terms of what our thinking was like. I would be embarrassed to look at those now compared to the experience that we've had over time in terms of when you look at that blank piece of paper and just like, what is the story that I need to tell? We really struggled with what is that story? And, and that story hasn't actually fundamentally changed from series A to series F. It's about why are you doing this business and why do you believe in it? And you should be able to explain that in an elevator pitch. At all rounds. All rounds. Because you maybe do a little bit of a pivot. You maybe incorporate something else. You figure out something that works a bit better. But fundamentally... It's the same product. 
it's the same market. The difference in the rounds is you have the luxury of showing that you're actually managing to achieve your five-year plan, that you have product market fit, that you are still growing quickly, that you're still not churning customers. But the other, the first half of the deck is still the same because you still have the same product and you still have the same solution and market that you're addressing. Mostly, you know, there might be some slight, slight tweaks, but that's about it. So it's around really getting that story straight, crystallizing it, and then repeating it. So once we had a good story, we just dusted it off and updated the numbers and could keep going. But so, it was not our A deck. <laughs> <laughs> so let's separate the two. Let's go for the story first. Sure. I, I mean, I work as well with a lot of startups. So sometimes I see stories that are their non-stories. Mm. There's no sense of direction in the deck, which can be sometimes excusable because I guess as a founder, when you are in your product, you might not see it from an outsider perspective, which is, I guess, one of the reasons people ask you to help them. But also sometimes it's overlong. It has all the details. It becomes a Dickens story, whereas you want something that you just use the word elevator pitch. So what do you do when you meet companies to find the essence? How, what, is there a process? Are there tips how to do that? I follow a very basic storyline. And I actually helping right now with a company where I have that blank piece of paper and I needed to start all over again. So I dug out my notes as what is my storyline and have used it myself. And it just drives a really easy story. And it's basically something like we're growing really quickly. Our underlying cost base is lean, or we can at least see how it's going to become lean. And we have the momentum and the proof that it's going to continue. And then here's why. It's a huge market. We have great product market fit, and this is what our customers say. They love us. So for product market fit, I look at negative churn, zero churn if you're not upselling, some good customer names, and repeatability, that you're actually giving the same solution to these customers. And then move into what makes us different. So is it about the product? Is it about the experience that you have? How are you different than competition? It doesn't have to always be the same elements, but it needs to be, why are you different? And it's oftentimes a really difficult piece for founders to think about because they're like, but you know, we're really cool and our product's really cool, but okay, but why are you different? How are you different? And how are you different in a way that I care about and not in such a minute detail that I don't understand? So we can spend a lot of time working through what is that hook that makes you different? And then finally, why we want the money. So... We're asking for 2 million, 3 million, 10 million, and we have a vague idea of what we're going to do with it. But more than that, we are responsible enough people to use your money in a responsible way. So I wouldn't go into huge amounts of detail and line item, but I would give the impression that if handed a few million pounds, you would know how to use it effectively in the way you speak rather than the way you display the data. So that first bit, the story you said, it stays more or less consistent over the different rounds of funding. And obviously the second bit, which is more about your numbers, is of course shifting. Do you think that the story is more important at the beginning when you don't have that much numbers to back up what you want to actually achieve? And then in the different kind of investors you're meeting, the investors you met at the Series E, were they more about, okay, what are the actual numbers? I mean, of course, you have to fall in love with your product, but were they more like interested in the numbers than when you did a B, for instance? I think they had more sophistication of the questions and what they cared about in the numbers but I don't think the Series B didn't care about numbers. The like Series B still cared. But the sophistication and also 
pulling the numbers apart and knowing when you're trying to manipulate a number to make it look as good as possible. If you have a great number, um, like I had a client I was working with recently who had zero churn. And I was just like, do you mean zero net churn? Do you mean absolute zero churn? Are you talking logo churn? Are you talking R churn or MMR churn? And he just kept going, no, we've lost no customers. And I had to keep asking. And he said, every time we talk about it, I get these same questions. And I said, well, that's, that's because people want to know, are you bullshitting them? Or honestly, do you have zero churn? And so don't get defensive and don't get worried. It's a good thing, particularly if it's a really good number. People just want to qualify it. What about if there's a bad number in there? What do you do? If you cannot put it in, don't put it in. This is your pitch deck. It's not your due diligence deck. This, you're not going in there expecting to come out with a term sheet and answering every question of your company. The point of this is to get the, that next meeting where you can then start to talk about getting a term sheet. So this is your opportunity to showcase your company in the best way possible. So use the numbers that help you the best. Don't feel like, oh, this is a really bad number, but I need to put it in and then spend the next three slides explaining why it's not such a bad number after all. Every company has weaknesses and it's okay as long as you understand your weaknesses, don't pretend they're not there and have a plan to mitigate that risk, but don't highlight your weaknesses. About the, the market size, the slide is always very striking sometimes, you know, the market size is 35 billion. What do you advise founders to put there? I mean, some markets are very clear because there's a lot of data about it. Some markets are not as clear because a lot of it is private, for instance. So what do you, do you tell them to go to the very high number that is very impressive? Do you? That's not an easy question because I think it varies by so much. Um, I'm not in favor of always going for the biggest number because then you do get that questioning and questioning and questioning until they get a number they believe in. Conversely, if it is actually that big, then great and stick by it. I also think that market sizing is really important as an element of your strategy and isn't something you should just do for the fundraising, but the results that you get, you should take on board. So I had another um, client I was working with, they're early stage and have three or four different markets they could go after. And they've done market sizing for each. And I was looking and I was digging down as to how they're calculating their addressable markets. And two of them, they've done the same way. And the third, they've done in a completely different way. And I said, but why not use the same methodology? And they said, oh, when we use that methodology, it's just huge. Okay, then that, I suggest, is the market you should focus on. So even though like the first two markets are the ones that they had planned, they just couldn't get their head around the fact that there was this other market that was seven times the size of the other two combined. And maybe that's where their effort should go. And you need to believe those pieces of information. It's not just intellectual exercise. You also insisted on the time you spent with the founders on the competitive landscape. Same question, how do you assess a landscape? Do you go into details, do you do market research about all your competitors? How do you get to that point where you can really not only say, look, we're great, but also look, we're great, but we're also better than the others. Do you have any tips for that bit? No, it's really hard. But you wouldn't have started your company if you thought that everybody was out there was exactly the same. Whatever it is that you saw as the gap in the market or the reason why competitors weren't addressing this is part of it. Also, I guess if you're the first and you have follow-ons, that's great that you can say, look, we're creating a market and this validates that there is one, but we're first entrance and this is how we're doing things better. But then you also need to really look at and think about 
why are we different? Why are we winning? Interview your customers, interview prospects, talk to other people in the market and find out why you're so good and come up with one, two, maximum three reasons. And they need to be compelling. It's more important to have one really compelling reason than it is to have 17 kind ofs. I love that. Yeah, because that comes back to having like overly long stories with different little yeah. bits, but not one point that is the essence. What about a focus that has slightly changed from Series B to C to D to E? You know, at some point in time, why did you change? How do you address that in a pitch deck? Do you address this at all? If it's part of your story and explains how you are today and why you're better placed because of it, yes. If it doesn't help you, no. <laughs> it's not one of those. I think that's a case-by-case -case example, but don't be afraid of moving and changing because not only... Does the company change, but market influences change and technology changes. So, And also people that you never would have thought are competitors suddenly are because different markets merge together. When Salesforce started, probably never would have thought that, well, I mean, marketing automation didn't even exist at the time, but they were fully in sales, let alone looking at SAP ERP systems. Like things just happen. One of the things that happened with us at New Voice Media was we were very much in the contact center space. And then because of competitors who were in the growing inside sales space and the outbound, we had technology to meet it, but we didn't have a mindset to meet it. And we were almost dragged into another market and it ended up being a very profitable one. So sometimes it's fine if the market's moving and you need to move with it. I would also be prepared, particularly in later rounds, because you're expected to know a lot more and markets are moving, what is happening in your market? Where do you see the market being in five years' time, three years' time? How are new technologies going to disrupt you or not disrupt you? So you really are, you're the expert in the room, and VCs will be probing you to see how much of an expert you are, whether they feel that they can trust you to get over what their concerns are and maybe market dynamics. You just said you're the expert in the room. Usually... The person who does the pitching can, can be a CEO, the founder, but you know sometimes you have multiple founders. You help also sometimes start up saying you maybe not be the right person because you're not an engaging, you should be the other co-founder. Do you involve yourself in that or not? Because it's hard, that's what I'm asking. <laughs> not overly, or maybe I haven't had to yet. I'm in the, right, we have a blank sheet of paper, or this is what we've created the first time, now let's go and create it. And so far... People have then used those decks and had good results. So I haven't had to come back to the, your deck didn't work, what's going on, and having the uncomfortable conversation that maybe it's the pitch that we need to work on. But I do think a level of self-awareness is to, and also sometimes you're having conversations with different investors, aren't you? You're building up a network even when you're not out there pitching. And you can see which personalities work and which combination should go in for those official pitches. It is a sales cycle and treat it like that and treat it. It's all about people. You need to know who you click with and who you don't. You just use the word blank sheet of paper. Up to now, the discussion, we kind of merge a bit pitching and decks together. Should they mirror each other? So everybody wants to put everything on the slides <laughs> yeah. and feels as though they're not going to be in the room to explain the slides. And they're much too wordy and they're much too detailed. You can have those, and if you really, really love those slides and really, really want them, turn them into a PDF that you hand out afterwards because you know it's going to go other places. But do not present those slides. Please don't present those slides. Because why should you be in the room then? 
people read it. It looks messy. It should be stripped back and you're there to talk. If you know you're going to get some tough questions and you get those same questions over and over again, have answers that you can answer out loud and not need to go, wait one second, I have a slide to address this and then find your slide and then stand up and draw things if you need to, write things on a piece of paper. It looks so much better because it just shows that you know your business. And even though you've had that thinking beforehand, being able to just express it is actually so much more compelling than having a perfectly made slide to explain it. The other thing, and I don't know if you agree with me, my ethos when I see uh, decks and pitches is like, if you look at movies in the past, let's say 20 years, Hollywood movies, there's no more opening credits. You start right in the action and it's like, boom, you're inside and you're hooked from the get-go. Sometimes, especially in Europe, we're less, and I'm not talking about movies here, I'm talking about decks, we're less, you know, marketing driven. So we start slow and then we get there. Don't you think that having a hook right at the start is something that you should do? Is it something that you also advise? Absolutely. Because you need to just bring your punchline to the front because otherwise nobody cares. They don't know how big you are. They don't know if you're growing. They don't know why you should be in the room. And your technology could be as cool as can be. But if you don't have product market fit and you're not growing, I don't care. So bring that very first slide where I was talking about we're growing like weeds. You need that to be your momentum slide. And it needs to be your first or second slide. If you really can't open up and you don't feel comfortable just starting with a slide of everything going up and to the right, have a little tiny summary at the beginning that reminds people why you're here and your story. So the summary should not be an agenda. It should be, we're growing like weeds. This is why, this is what makes us different. And that's pretty much it. Not even necessarily why we want your money. So do those top three with the point of each of those so that everybody can remember and go, okay, right, I care. 100% year on year growth, got it. Huge market, got it. No churn, fantastic. Let me hear what you have to say. You've been through most of this, and that's why probably you're so good at doing what you do now, because you've actually done it. And you've done it on the, both sides of the Atlantic. Was there a difference in how you had to address investors or how they would receive the message? Or has this difference maybe been obliterated now in the past five years? You see investors in the UK and Europe acting more like American ones, or are there still differences? Are they like, would you give an advice to a British founder or any founder that is based in Europe to act differently when he or she would be in the US or not? I think for some elements, I know it's still true. And then others, I'm not sure what's happened with the slowdown in the US in terms of valuations. But in terms of the cultural ones that you expect, like in the US, they want you to be really brash. They want you to have big growth targets. They want you to be a bit arrogant. And it's often very uncomfortable for Europeans to do that. And you're never going to hit the American levels, but even just pushing yourself a little bit more in that direction. And you'll feel like you're the biggest braggart out there and horrible <laughs> and really uncomfortable. The Americans will still think you're quaint and European and quite a gentleman or lady. Um, so don't be afraid to be brasher for the Americans, both in why you're different, why you're growing and your accomplishments beforehand. Like dealt with another client recently who's had some amazing previous exit. He's created a billion worth of value in previous businesses. You have to do that for Americans. Are the questions from American investors also brasher? Being an American, I'm probably not as sensitive to it. <laughs> Uh, but Americans are more direct, so you're going to get more direct questions. Also, we dealt with Americans 
further down in the rounds. And so they were very, very numerate. All have business school backgrounds, all just consume data all the time. And in one of the decks in BVP, I had messed up on one of the slides. We reported everything in pounds. They wanted it in dollars. And in one slide, I accidentally doubled it and then doubled it again. It was a momentum slide. And so there were like six graphs. And within 10 seconds, he said, oh, the pipeline slide doesn't look right. I couldn't even look at all of the graphs in time. And he immediately picked it out. And then I looked and realized I had doubled accidentally. The numeracy, like the fluency and numeracy, I found really surprising. But again, that might not be an American versus UK. That's just later stage investment banker and MBA backgrounds. You did that mistake and we all did at some point. How do you practice and what do you advise? Because I know practice, 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 but who do you practice to? Yeah, I think it's, and again, if you go to board members, it's sometimes helpful, but again, they know the business really well. But I would put it through board members, make them work for some of their money and get their advice on, on certain parts of it. And then I would go to friends who are in business and can even be in technology. So it's not people that are complete novices. Like, don't try and get a pitch deck that your grandmother can understand. It doesn't matter because oftentimes there's one about in sales. You should be able to pitch technology for your grandmother. Not for a pitch deck because you still have a lot of financial fluency that is required. But try for people who are even in technology but in other areas and be able to pitch to them. And if they get it, that, that's what you're looking for. And the questions they ask are going to be questions that you're going to hear. If you have somebody like that, that's who you should be pitching to. Beautiful. And if you don't, find some. And uh, I know it's not something we uh, like to talk about, but we, we just said, okay, you made a mistake, but you made an honest mistake. And, and sometimes mistakes are dishonest. Do you see that happening? Have you heard that happening where you know, the numbers are not exactly the numbers you have and you try to make it even better than it looks like? And it's because they really want to include a number, but it's not quite right. What, I had one recently where it was three different definitions of a close rate with three numbers for each year. But is that because you're hiding that your close rate hasn't actually improved or not? And we have a whole conversation. And for this one, I'm, not, I'm really not sure why they did that, because actually just measuring it the same way across all three still looked good. It was maybe a point difference, but it was not worth creating this ambiguity. And VCs are used to people fudging numbers or calculating numbers in really weird ways. And they're smart to it, and they'll ask those questions. And it's just so much better to have the real numbers there, because you will be found out. And if they test those one or two numbers that look too good to be true, and they are, then they will question every number in your deck. If they question and they're true, then they'll trust every number in your deck. So it's just not worth it because you will be discovered. I'm sure that after listening to you, a lot of people would want to maybe contact you, know more about you. Is there, what's the best way to do that? The best way we go, either have a look on the website, I'm on the Notion Experts website, or contact Steve Miller directly, or look me up through LinkedIn. And that's what we all do. And on that, thank you so much, Beth. Thank you. 